So does everyone understand this morning what a rhetorical question is? A rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question that's asked, but it's not asked in order to get an answer. A rhetorical question is a question that you ask, but you're really making a point, right? So if I ask my daughter Olivia, how many times have I asked you to brush your teeth? If she's not brushing her teeth, then she's supposed to be. I'm not really asking you, am I? I'm kind of telling you, you need to go brush your teeth, right? That's a rhetorical question. It's a question that's asked not to get an answer, but instead to make a point. And rhetorical questions can be powerfully persuasive. They're very persuasive because they provoke the listener to think. When I ask my daughter Olivia, how many times have I asked you to brush your teeth? I'm getting her to think, aren't I? about the instruction I have given her and her failure to this point to go do the thing that I've asked her to do. It provokes the listener to think and to set their mind upon the facts, and it helps them to arrive at a conclusion. There's a subversive power to these kinds of questions, and it, it can be used for bad. Earlier in the book of Genesis, we saw Satan in the garden posed a deadly question, didn't he, to Eve. Did God really say now, was he asking for information or was he insinuating a point? God's not telling you the truth. He invited Adam and Eve to arrive at their own conclusions, a spiritually disastrous conclusion. That was a question that subverted the truth and undermined their faith. But Satan is a counterfeit, isn't he? He always takes something good and twists it to use for evil. And he does not have a corner on the market of communication. God himself has often used questions and he's used questions not to sow seeds of doubt, but to erect a scaffolding for faith, to subvert error and unbelief, and to lead people to see clearly, to draw them out, to see his divine nature and his power. In Job 38, for example, God asked Job a barrage of questions, didn't he? Questions that invited Job to consider the facts of reality. Questions that stripped away his feelings of indignation. Questions that silenced his accusations. He said, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Not necessarily needing information. He's making a point. We see this all throughout scripture. We don't have time to survey all the rhetorical questions God has asked. Just a couple of them we know at the end of the book of Jonah. As he's wallowing in his self-pity and resentment outside the city of Nineveh, God asks him a question. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And the book ends on that question. It ends on that question. Jonah, I'm merciful. Why should I not show mercy to these people? Jesus was a master of questions. By some counts, he asked over 300 questions in the Gospels. We surveyed many of those in our study through the Gospel of Mark. Here in Genesis 18, where we find ourselves today, I want to focus in on two questions. Two questions that drive home the central issue. The first is in Genesis 18, verse 14, where God himself asks this powerful rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for me? And a second question, this time coming from the lips of Abraham in verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Will not God, the judge of all the earth, do what is right, what is just? What do these two rhetorical, rhetorical questions have in common? It's this. 
They both reveal for us the nature and character of God. That's what these questions are doing. For those who are called to faith, in this case, Abraham and Sarah, this was something that they desperately needed to see and understand and know what their God was like. You see, faith in the promise really boils down to faith in the one who's giving the promise, doesn't it? God had called them. He made promises to them and asked them to trust him and believe. And if they're going to trust in God's promise, if they're going to walk in covenant relationship with him, then they must know what he is like. And God, being gracious, does not leave them in the dark. He draws near to them here in this chapter to make himself known to them. You see, faith in God is strengthened by the knowledge of God. And that's the principle we see here in Genesis chapter 18. We see, first of all, in verses 1 through 15, the power of God revealed to Sarah. The power of God revealed to Sarah. We find, first of all, in verses 1 through 8, some unique visitors that come. These unique visitors come to see Abraham, and he shows them remarkable hospitality. Look with me in verses 1 through 8. It says, And the Lord appeared to him, this is to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if you have found favor, or if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Three unique visitors. And we, and we see Abraham showing some remarkable hospitality. Who are these visitors? Well, these visitors include none other than the Lord himself in human form. This is what theologians would call a theophany. It's an appearance of God in physical form in the Old Testament. This is Jesus before he was born as a baby, the Son of God appearing to Abraham. This is the preexistent Christ, and he's accompanied by two angels. We discover this as we read through the rest of the chapter. But they appeared to Abraham to be as three men. Later, they'll be revealed to be God and angels. We see in, verse, in chapter 19, verse 1, that the two angels who were part of this entourage they left to go to Sodom after meeting with Abraham. And as we discover later, Abraham will pray and beseech the leader of this group as God himself, as the judge of all the earth. This is the Lord and two angels. But the narrative here is told from Abraham's perspective. And they appear to him at first simply as three men. And the text indicates that at first Abraham doesn't know who they are. He doesn't understand the identity of these visitors. Perhaps this is what the author of Hebrews had in mind when later he wrote in Hebrews 13.2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
So Abraham shows great hospitality to these mysterious visitors. And this was the custom of the day among the nomadic peoples like Abraham, people who traveled from place to place, setting up their tent, grazing their flocks. As those who traveled frequently, they lived by a code, an honor code that included caring for their fellow travelers. Abraham shows great honor to these guests. He bows himself before them. He shows them great hospitality. He sets an extravagant feast. Three seahs of flour would have been several gallons worth of flour. That's a lot of bread. And, and rather than taking maybe a small goat, he kills a calf. This was a special, event, a special occasion. He shows great uh, generosity and hospitality to these men, spreads a feast before them. And he shows great humility. The text tells us that he stands before them while they eat. Now, Abraham had many servants and even had multiple wives. But Abraham himself, the patriarch of the family, stands and serves them as their waiter. Nothing but the best for these visitors. And he refers to them as my Lord, meaning my master. Title of honor. So why is all this hospitality spelled out in such detail? Why does the author, Moses, here tell us of what he served at this feast and all of his show of hospitality and honor? Well, we won't quite get to this this week, but next week we will see the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's hospitality stands in stark contrast to the way that these same visitors will be received by the wicked inhabitants of that city. Abraham is shown here to be righteous, to be righteous. And it is revealed, as it is revealed later, that it's actually God who's visiting Abraham. We see just how appropriate all these actions are in showing honor to his Lord and his God. But as these unique visitors come and enjoy Abraham's hospitality, secondly, we see in verses 9 through 15 that there's a question that is asked, and it results ultimately in Sarah's laughter. Look with me. Verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. This unique visitor that is revealed here to be the Lord, all capitals, Yahweh, the God of the covenant. He asks a surprising question, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, she was in the tent because women customarily did not eat with the men. But why did this visitor care? Why did the Lord care where Sarah was? Well, I want us to understand that Sarah is actually a big part of the reason that these visitors came to visit Abraham. She's part of the reason the Lord has come to draw near to Abraham. Last week we saw that God has told Abraham about the promise of a son, not through one of his servants, but through Sarah, his wife. And he had told Abraham that at this time next year, 
she would have a son, and they would name him Isaac, which means laughter. But you know what? Sarah needed to hear this promise. The Lord had spoken it to Abraham, but Sarah needs to hear it, not secondhand through her husband, but from the mouth of her Lord and God. She needed to hear it from the lips of her Savior. So God repeats the promise that he made in chapter 17. You see that in verse 10. Now, he knows that she's in the tent. He knows that she can hear. So he says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Moses kind of narrates the scene for us. He tells us that Sarah is listening from the other side of the tent door. Maybe some of you guys have eavesdropped before on an important conversation in your house. Maybe stood at the doorway, stood in the next room. That's exactly what's going on here. Sarah wants to know, what are they talking about? She hears her name and her ears perk up. And hears these words that Sarah is going to have a son. And the narrator here, Moses, repeats for us three times the fact of her advanced age. He says, Abraham and Sarah were advanced in years. Sarah was very old. He says, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She's past menopause. That ship has sailed, (laughs) okay? She's no longer in the childbearing years. Her womb, we read here, is now twice dead. She's been barren all her life, never able to conceive. And now all hope of that was gone because she's too old. So Sarah laughs to herself. She laughs at the utter impossibility of having a son. That's impossible. Seriously, there's no way that could happen to me. Right, whatever. She's talking to herself, muttering perhaps under her breath. And she wonders at such a bold and totally unrealistic claim. Fat chance, Sarah thinks. Perhaps Abraham had not told her what God had promised. That's possible. Perhaps this is the first time she's hearing this. Or perhaps, and I think this is more likely, she was just unconvinced when Abraham had told her, listen to what the Lord told me. When he made the covenant with us, he said this. Perhaps she had not believed him and she remained unconvinced. But now it's not Abraham's voice that she's hearing. It's the voice of the Lord. And the unique power of this mysterious visitor becomes immediately apparent because the Lord asks, why did Sarah laugh? He asks Abraham this pointed question because he knows not only that she's listening, but he knows that she's laughing. He knows that she's laughing. As we saw previously, he is the God who hears. That's what the name Ishmael means. He is the God who sees. Hagar named the well after the God who sees, the God of seeing. And he knows and sees Sarah's heart. And in asking this question, why did you laugh? Or why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And then he follows up with this rhetorical question, this powerful question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? In asking this question, he's doing two things. He's exposing her small faith, first of all. Why are you laughing? Is anything too hard for me? But get this, he's also pointing her gaze away from herself, away from her age, away from her barrenness, and pointing her gaze to the God of promise. Look at me, he's saying to Sarah. Is anything too hard for me? Because that's what you should be thinking about. That's what you should be resting in. Don't look at your age. Don't look at your barrenness. Don't look at the facts of biology. 
Look to my power. Is anything too hard for me? God wants her to see him and to know what he is like because this is the thing that she needs to strengthen her faith. Well, Sarah responds with a nervous lie. She denied it, verse 15, saying, I I did not laugh. And the reason she says this, it says, is because she was afraid. She was afraid. Just like Adam and Eve became afraid of God when they sinned, and they sought to hide themselves and cover themselves, here Sarah becomes afraid and tries to hide and cover her laughter. Why is she afraid? Because this mysterious visitor knows her thoughts. He's no ordinary traveler. He knows her thoughts. He can see her. He can hear her, though she is hidden and silent. And she has been found out. He knows. And she's been confronted by his omniscience. He knows all things. And if he knows that I'm laughing, if he knows what I am thinking, perhaps he knows that I will actually bear a son at this time next year. Same voice that spoke the word of promise, the word of power, the same voice that confronted her unbelief is the same voice that just promised that she would have a son, and she is afraid because she's been found out. Now, this uncomfortable experience was actually a blessing to her. If you look back in chapter 17, in verse 15, God had said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, this is as he is making this covenant, or giving uh, Abraham the, the sign of this covenant, he says, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. God intended not only to have a relationship with Abraham, but to have a relationship with Sarai. He changed her name and showed that personal connection with her, his relationship with her. And he made this promise that he would bless her not just Abraham. And as God draws near, his exposure of her unbelief actually invites her to faith, invites her into relationship with himself. God is pursuing her, showing himself to her, strengthening her faith. His challenge to her is actually a sign of grace that ignites the spark of faith in her heart. We see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, that it is by faith that Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. God's efforts were not in vain. Sarah would come to believe the promise. The words of God provided a scaffolding for her weak faith. Abraham's words had not convinced her, but now she believed. And God would actually have the last laugh. She says, I did not laugh. And it almost seems petty Because God has the last word here. No, but you did laugh. And God's not being petty. He will have the last word. And he'll have the last laugh as well. Because Isaac will be born at this time next year. And his name will forever commemorate the laughter that both Abraham and Sarah responded with when they first had heard the promise. But Isaac will be born. And his name will be a tribute to God's power forever. When they looked at him, they would know that God is powerful Nothing is too hard for him. He has power over age and the deadness of a womb, and he has power even over our unbelief and our weak faith. There's two important lessons we can learn here. Number one, and this is important because a lot of people get this wrong today in the church. God's promise does not depend on our faith. It doesn't. 
There are many people who say, God wants to do great things, but he can't because you don't have enough faith. If you would only believe, God could do more. Did Abraham and Sarah have strong faith? Did Sarah initially receive this promise and believe? No. Did that stop God from doing exactly what he intended to do? Absolutely not. God's promise does not depend on their faith. The power, get this, the power is not in their faith. The power is in God, the object of their faith. Yes, God will not work apart from our obedience, and he often works through our faith as the means by which he does great things, but the power itself resides in God and not in our faith. That's encouraging to us. Secondly, we need to consider the power of God. The question that God asked to Abraham and Sarah that day is a question he asked to us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What is it that could possibly be beyond his reach? You might be sitting here thinking this morning, God is powerful, but I just don't know if he can really help me break free from that one sin I just can't seem to defeat. I know God can do great things, but I think my marriage is just too broken, too dysfunctional for God to truly heal and reform and strengthen it. I know God is powerful. I know God can do many things, but this person I love is too far off. They would never believe the gospel. What is it that is too hard for our God? Consider who he is. He is the God, as we saw early in this book, who spoke the world and the universe and everything in it into existence. He is the God who upholds and sustains creation by the power of his word. He is the God who took the nation Israel out of the land of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, defeated Pharaoh, performed miraculous signs and plagues, parted the Red Sea and brought them out. We serve a God who walked into the grave and defeated it. Jesus is alive today. We serve a resurrected, risen Savior. Is anything too hard for him? Tell him. Tell him today that whatever it is you're facing is too hard for him because he rose from the grave. This is who our God is. We need to consider his power. Faith in God is strengthened by the knowledge of God. And to know God is to know him as powerful, all power. And as we come to know God through his self-revelation, he's shown us what he is like. We must believe that nothing is too hard for him. That's a lesson Sarah needed to learn. And that's part of the reason why God has drawn near to them here in this story. But there's a second conversation that happens. We see that in verses 16 through 33. Not only is the power of God revealed to Sarah, but the justice of God is revealed to Abraham. In the first scene, God is the gracious visitor and Abraham the hospitable host. But as the scene shifts here, it reveals God as a righteous judge and Abraham as a humble intercessor. First, we see some inner dialogue here as God is sort of talking to himself in verses 16 through 19. It says, then the men set out from there. The meal's over. They're moving on. And they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. He's escorting them on their journey. And the Lord said, and he's speaking here to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, 
that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. There's an inner dialogue here. God decides to reveal, not to hide, his intentions to Abraham. To let Abraham in on his plan. To let Abraham know what it is that he is about to do. Why? Why does God bother to fill in Abraham? He doesn't owe him an explanation. He doesn't need Abraham's permission, that's for sure. Why would God reveal this plan to Abraham? His plan to go down to Sodom and see what was going on there and to bring judgment. Why is it? Well, remember Abraham's covenant obligations. Look back in chapter 7. Chapter 17, in verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. That is who God is. And in light of that, here is who Abraham must be. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. Last week, we looked at these ethical obligations. If you will be in relationship with God, if you will receive his promises and his blessings and his covenant, there's implications. We are called to a certain kind of life. Abraham was called to a holy and a righteous life. And if he was going to walk before God and be blameless, be holy and be righteous, if if he was going to be the chosen father of a holy nation, if he was going to be blessed by God and bring blessing to the world, this privileged position required obedience and righteousness and justice. God says that here in chapter 18. He says, should I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. There's his privilege and his purpose. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That's God's plan. God is seeking to do things in and through Abraham says, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to do what? To live however they chose? No, that he may command them to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God intends for Abraham to live a certain kind of way and for his children and the nation that would come to him come through him to live a certain sort of way, holy and righteous. And what God is about to give Abraham is the basis for that, the motivation for that. If they are to live a holy life, they must fear the Lord. They need to know just how holy he is. And they need to understand just how righteous he is. They need to see how perfectly and completely just he is as a judge. Because only then will they be able to live and walk in holiness. You see, this call to walk before the Lord and to be blameless, this is not a suggestion that God gives to Abraham. This is not a favor. Hey, Abraham, do me a favor. Will you live a holy life? No. This is more than a recommendation. This is actually, as Abraham will come to learn, A matter of life and death. It is a matter of life and death. Abraham, if Abraham is going to be in a covenant relationship with God, and if God's plans of redemption are going to move forward, then he must understand who God is and what God is like, that he is both holy and he is just. Consider his holiness. Consider his holiness. We see this 
as God tells Abraham what he is about to do. The Lord said, verse 20, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. You see, not only does God hear Sarah's laughter, he also hears the groaning of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as he heard Abel's blood crying out for justice from the ground when Cain killed his brother, God hears the cry for justice that is coming from these cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, we've already been told about their corruption back in chapter 13. We see that Lot had moved towards these cities, and it says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We're all sinners. We all break God's law, but these people had become known for that. They had fully given themselves to completely throwing off God's righteousness and and the holiness and the design God had given humanity. They had completely embraced their lusts, wickedness, unrighteousness, injustice, cruelty. And we'll see the horrible portrait of that next week. We'll see the horrific proof of their depravity and the stunning judgment that would be sent by God. And you know what? Abraham would see the aftermath. He would see the aftermath. In Genesis 19, 27, it says, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, the same place where he had this conversation with God. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley. This is the place that God had just destroyed by fire and brimstone. And he looked He's seeing it here. There's emphasis on he's taking this in. And behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Abraham will see and know exactly what happened, and he will know why. Because God is holy and because God is just. It will be a poignant reality for him, a vivid experience, something he has heard and seen, something, get this, that he has even smelled. But consider also not only the holiness of God, but his justice. Abraham will learn here through this conversation with God that God's judgment is not hasty or arbitrary. God has heard and God is going down to see. The judge is going to weigh all the evidence. He is not rash. He is not hasty in his judgment. He will examine them. If the city is guilty, God will know. And if they're not, if it's been exaggerated, He will refrain from judgment. If there are righteous people there, he will withhold. Abraham learns that God is perfectly just, impartial, and renders exactly what is due. God says, I'll go down and see. And if if what I am hearing is not true, I'll know. I will know. Psalm 11.4 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. God never deals out one ounce of judgment that is not deserved. And he also never withholds one ounce ounce of judgment that needs to be poured out. He is perfectly holy and just. 
we see now an interactive dialogue happen between Abraham and God. Abraham responds to this revelation. He knows the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he knows that God is just. So notice how he responds. The men turned from there in verse 22 and went toward Sodom. These are the two angels. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. He's, he knows he's on thin ice, and he's, he's being as humble as possible here, but he's searching. And he says, in verse 28, Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And then God ends the conversation, verse 33. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Abraham asks a key question. Verse 25 at the end there. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I don't think he's asking this question because he doubts whether or not God is just, but he's searching to understand what that justice looks like. God is not held accountable to some standard outside himself. He himself is just. What he does is the definition of just. And Abraham is trying to understand what does that mean? What does that look like if there's 50 righteous? Will they be just the collateral damage for the outpouring of your justice? Will, will 45 innocent bystanders experience the wrath that others deserve? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? Abraham is, is searching out, trying to understand the justice of God and interceding for these people. What about the innocent bystanders, Lord? What will happen to them? Abraham's not only exploring God's justice, but he's also demonstrating concern for his neighbors. Remember, he's already rescued these people once. Remember a couple weeks ago, we saw that those foreign invaders came and they defeated Sodom and everybody else who tried to stand against them, captured them, took their women and children and possessions, and who came to the rescue? Abraham. Abraham did, in part because his nephew Lot was there. But Abraham has concern for them, for these neighbors and his nephew Lot and his family that he knows are living there. But as Abraham goes back and forth with God, his understanding of God's justice and his holiness is clarified. 
His intuition is right. God is just, and the judge of all the earth will do right. Nothing that he does can ever be called unjust. You see, God's just, but he's also merciful. He's also merciful. These people deserve judgment, but even if there was only 10 righteous in the city, God says, for the sake of those 10, he would spare all the others. That's mercy. That is mercy. Such a just and merciful God, the implication is this, can be trusted. We can trust him. God's not losing his temper against Sodom and Gomorrah. God's not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Everything he does is just. As Psalm 98 says, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Why? For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He is a just judge, and he always does what is right. Abraham's faith here is informed, and it is strengthened in this dialogue with God. Perfect justice for the wicked, mercy for the righteous. That's a sobering reality, but it's truth, and it's truth that is substantive, that is weighty, that's like ballast in the boat, to keep him from tipping over. As he moves forward, he knows who his God is and what his God is like. Two questions we've looked at this morning in this passage that highlight two key truths, that God is powerful and God is just. Faith in God is strengthened by this knowledge. I want your faith this morning to be strengthened by this knowledge, that the God we serve, the God we trust, the God we worship is powerful And he is just. He is just. God showed Sarah and Abraham exactly what they both needed to see. In order for their faith to endure, in order for them to walk in holiness before the Lord, in order for them to endure in this covenant relationship, Abraham and Sarah needed to know what their God was like. So God drew near to make himself known. In this way, he's strengthening their faith. And he's shaping them into the kind of people that they must be if they will walk with him. Now, this is a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of what would happen one day in the future. Not only did God draw near to them to reveal himself to them, but God has drawn near to us and has made himself known to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth to show us who God is and what God is like. John 1:18 says, No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus says, the one who sees me has seen the Father. Jesus comes to reveal God to us. And what do we see when we encounter Jesus? What do we see when we draw near to him? What is it that has been revealed in the person and work of Christ? The same things that were revealed and made known. That day in Abraham's tent. That day as they stood on the ridge overlooking the valleys of the cities on the plain. In Jesus, we see the power of God on display. We see it in his miraculous birth. Consider, even as the angel Gabriel talks to Mary, we hear an echo of this ancient story. The angel Gabriel tells Mary of an impossible birth. Even more impossible than an old married woman. A woman who's never been married and never been with a man. She asks Gabriel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And what is the angel's response? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High 
will overshadow you. Do you hear the echo of this ancient story? An impossible birth, because nothing is impossible with God. The angel tells her this, that nothing is impossible with God. Is anything too hard for him? Absolutely not. But the power of God is evident not only in the birth of Jesus, but also in the life and ministry of Jesus. We see his authority over disease. He tells the lame and the lepers to be healed and to walk, causes the blind to see. We see his authority and his power over demons. They tremble in his presence. They cry out in fear, and they jump when he says jump. They leave. We see his power over the forces of nature. He rebukes the wind and the waves and the storm, says, peace, be still. And the disciples tremble in fear. They go, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? His power is on display. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. No. And most miraculously, as we mentioned earlier, Jesus walks out of the grave. Death itself is turned inside out. Triumph over our ultimate foe. There is nothing impossible for him. Not only do we see the power of God on display in the life of Jesus, but we see the justice and mercy of God made explicit, made explicit at the cross. If anyone doubts God's justice, his attitude towards sin, the judgment that, that wicked disobedience deserves, look no further than the cross of Christ. There, the wrath of God was poured out. This is how seriously God takes sin. Nothing is ever swept under the rug. Every sin is dealt with. Every ounce of judgment and wrath poured out against sin. But not only is his justice seen there, but also his mercy. His mercy the mercy of God is shown. His grace and kindness is marvelous because there, as judgment was rendered, Jesus accomplished salvation for all who would believe. He died in our place. If you're a believer this morning, if you have been saved from the judgment of God, it's not because God decided to sweep your sins under the rug and withhold that judgment. It's because he poured it out on Jesus instead. Jesus died as our substitute and absorbed the wrath of God so that we might be saved. Here's the reality. All of us today, because of our sin, are in danger of judgment. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages for our sin, the punishment for this sin, is death. But here's the good news. Just as Abraham interceded on behalf of that wicked city, we have a mediator between God and man, who intercedes for us, who prays for the righteous, who pleads the case of those who are righteous and says, not them, Lord. You say, but I'm not righteous. Here's the thing. Jesus not only prays for those who are righteous, he makes us righteous. He changes our status by forgiving us of our sin and crediting his righteousness to us so that he can rightly stand before his father and say these are righteous and they don't deserve your judgment because I've given them my own righteousness and taken their judgment upon myself and just as God promised Abraham he will not judge the righteous only the wicked we have that hope that those of us who are in Christ are declared righteous so Romans chapter 8 Paul can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus why because like Paul tells the Corinthians, that he who knew no sin 
became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In the work of Jesus, we see the justice and the righteousness of God on display, his holiness and his mercy, his power and his grace. And it is through seeing Jesus and knowing Jesus that we know God. He is the object of our faith. In this, we find salvation. If you don't know him this morning, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Trust in him because he can make you righteous. And he will intercede on your behalf so that you will experience the grace and the blessing of God. God can be trusted. He is powerful. He is just. He will not be stopped by any circumstance. He will never pervert justice. And friends, this is the solid foundation for faith that was revealed to Abraham and Sarah and to us. This is the foundation for our faith. That God has drawn near to make himself known. And in these truths, we find hope and strength to walk with him. Let's look to him in faith. May our faith be strengthened as we understand who our God is and what our God is like. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. Jesus is the light of the world who entered our darkness, who revealed to us who you are. The one who shows us your power, the one who shows us your justice, but also the one who comes to extend mercy and rescue those who are in danger. I pray, Lord, that if there's any here who don't know you today, that they would understand who you are and that they would place their faith in you, that they would trust in the work of Jesus on the cross to cleanse them from sin and make them right with you. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, but we struggle sometimes, our faith is weak. It's often two steps forward and one step backwards for us. We stumble. Sometimes we fear. The circumstances look impossible. And we question sometimes, wrongfully so, but we question whether you're just, whether you're really doing the right thing. I pray that we would be strengthened in our faith this morning as we look upon you, the object of our faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.